Well, hello. And I was going to say good afternoon, but I was thinking about it right as the uh, minutes were ticking away. And I thought, you know, could be evening, could be morning, could be anywhere. Um, We've got a growing audience from around the world. And I want to welcome you all to today's special event. We've got lots of uh, of great people out there in our community. And I thank you for being part of our community. Uh, My name is Guy Stevens. I'm the founder and executive director of the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. Uh, I started this organization to raise awareness about the use of restraint and seclusion in schools across the the nation. But really, we're trying to raise awareness uh, across the the nation, across the world. We've got lots of allies in uh, places like Canada and New Zealand and the UK, Australia. Um, So really, really uh, pleased to be working with so many people from across the globe. Our mission at the Alliance is really to educate the public and connect people together who are dedicated to really changing minds, laws and policies. Uh, and practices so that restraint and seclusion are reduced and eliminated from schools uh, across the nation, really beyond. Uh, we know there are better ways to, to work with kids uh, based on neuroscience and trauma-informed approaches and collaborative approaches. Uh, we really want to make a positive difference. Our vision is really to see safer schools for all students, teachers, and staff. And you know, we to do that, we've got to we've got to grow and come up with uh, better ideas for for working with kids. Uh, today, I'm very excited. We have a guest, Donna Shea, joining us uh, for a very special presentation. Uh, I do want to let you know that we're going to be taking questions at the end of the presentation today. Uh, so if you have questions, you're welcome to put those in the chat. And you can put them in the chat at any time, but we'll probably address most of the questions at the end. Also, today's event will be recorded, as always. Uh, we're going to be making that available after the fact on Facebook, YouTube, as well as available on an audio podcast. So before we get started, I want to introduce to you uh, our um, co-host today. Uh, our co-host today is Daya Cheney-Webb. Daya is a mom of two teenage sons, uh, one with autism. Uh, Daya lives in Maryland, uh, like myself, and has been in edu- an education advocate in Baltimore County since 2013. Uh, serving first as chair and then as a member of the Area Education Advisory Council to the Board of Education, uh, providing guidance on topics like special education needs in the county, organizing through grassroots initiatives and coalition building with strong partnerships. Uh, Dea is also active in federal legislation, uh, legislative advocacy for healthcare, education, and overall civil rights for children with complex medical needs and disabilities. And when she's not meeting with policymakers to protect the vulnerable uh, and creating strategies for change, she loves live music, and that's a little tough to get these days, uh, cooking and travel to anywhere on the water. Um, She's also our legislative director for the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. I'm proud to have her as a friend and colleague. So, Dea, welcome, and thanks for uh, co-hosting today. Thanks, Guy. I appreciate that. Absolutely. I'm super excited to welcome Donna here today and introduce her. Uh, Donna Shea founder of the Peter Pan Center for Social and Emotional Growth, is a social-emotional learning specialist. Since opening her center in 2002, she's worked to address the needs of families whose children are struggling with behavior and social challenges. Donna brings 33 years of life experience to her work as a parent of two sons with ADHD, anxiety, and sensory integration challenges. Donna is a consultant to schools, parent groups, and human service agencies. She is also a seasoned public speaker and travels to bring workshops and seminars to groups and venues outside the local area. She has certifications in cognitive behavioral coaching, pathological demand avoidance, positive psychology, and bullying prevention. Donna is also the co-writer of How to Make and Keep Friends book series. 
Sounds great, Donna, and welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for allowing me to be part of your very your very important mission. You know, I'm, I'm glad that um, that we were able to find each other. Absolutely. It's great to have you here today. As I mentioned to you before, I have a copy of uh, one of the books in that series, How to How to Make and Keep Friends. Uh, so I thought that was really interesting. You know, we've had an opportunity to meet some amazing people uh, through the work that we've been doing. And you were actually recommended to us by a member of our community who said, you know, you, you've got to talk to, to Donna Shea. And I had a chance to, to talk to you and, and, and hear about all the amazing work that you're doing. And we're really, really honored to have you join us. You know, one of the, the big missions we have is really to to help you know parents teachers you know um um you know advocates self advocates and others um you know find better ways of of working with children and you know certainly your work fits in well with that and and thanks again for being here my pleasure so i'm going to go ahead and bring up your slide deck and in bringing up your slide deck i am also going to uh, make day and i disappear so everyone can get to hear hear your presentation without us uh, uh, interrupting. So I'm going to go ahead and move us out here and let you take it over. And we'll come back at the end to answer any questions that people might have. All right, great. Thank you. I'll be glad to take it from here. Because when we can start, hey, hey Donna. Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it sounds like um, it sounds like there's something going on with your audio, and oh, no. uh, you sound fine when I'm here. And when I disappeared, it sounded um, strange, uh, and I'm wondering if um, you're. Yeah, let's see. If, can you say something for me? Sure. Um, talking about strategies today for managing behavior. Okay, um, so it seems to be working. Daya, shake your head. Can you hear her? Okay, now. Okay, so so today I can hear you fine now. I'm going to try to try to disappear again. Uh, do you know where your microphone is located? Um, no. Okay. Um, but I um, I can lean a little closer if that helps. Yeah, it was kind of broken up. So let let me try to disappear. And if okay. disappearing doesn't work, I'll just hide in the corner. And you might have to stay just, in the corner. <laughs> it seems, to work, it seems to work while I'm here. Yeah. So let's try this and and just uh, read read the title real quick. And if it doesn't work, I'll come back and we'll let you take it from there. All right. Let me read it for you then. Um, Behavior is a language of children, strategies for understanding and managing childhood behavior challenges. Yeah, for some reason, it's getting a little broken up. So I'm just going to kind of disappear off in the corner and let you take it away. And it sounds like the audio is fine that way. Okay, sounds good. We'll just keep you on that. I, right. I you won't even see me. So that's a great part. <laughs> okay. All I can see is my thing. All right. So um, let me move on from there. Uh, Dave did a wonderful job of, of introducing me already. And as Guy mentioned, I'm the co-author of a series of social-emotional learning books for kids. Um, that's been a work that's been very um, a passion for my friend Nadine Briggs and I, who also is a social-emotional learning coach, about bringing some of the work we do outside of the small centers, the smaller centers that we have each, into the greater world. So behavior. What is behavior? 
It's the way in which one acts or conducts oneself, especially toward other people. And what is language? Language is the system of words or signs that people use to express thoughts and feelings to each other. Language does not necessarily have to be words. And that's where we run into children demonstrating and communicating to us, but not necessarily using words. So I love this um, meme or this quote is what we sometimes see as a failure to behave properly is actually a failure to communicate properly. So we're going to be talking a lot about communication with children today. So behavior is a language. So when a child that you're working with or a child that belongs to you is misbehaving, what are, we try what are they trying to say? What are, we, what are they trying to communicate to us? And part of our job as the adult is to help solve the puzzle. So we want to be proactive in looking at what's going on as opposed to reactive. And sometimes we get caught into a child does something and we go into this reactive sort of disciplinary mode instead of really, you know, kind of putting a little, um, I, I, my, what's the word I'm looking for, um, my, uh, microscope on a kid right, to kind of figure out, like, what is it that this kiddo is trying to say? Because what happens is if we find ourselves disciplining the same behaviors over and over again, first of all, that discipline isn't working. And it's not going to be effective unless you solve the root of the behavior. If you can solve the why that the child is doing what they're doing, then you're going to, you would think by, by reason, you would decrease what it is that they're doing that is maladaptive or not working for them. So ask yourselves these questions when a kiddo is, is misbehaving. Am I addressing behavior, which is the action or the outcome, or am I addressing the problem to be solved, which is the cause of the behavior? Think about and ask yourself, what is the child having difficulty doing in this moment? Changing the way we ask this question, changing the way that we look at it. And here's a non-exhaustive list of common difficulties. Kid might have difficulty ending a video game to get ready for bed. Difficulty coming indoors from playing outside. Maybe there's some difficulty in following directions. The child may be having difficulty getting started on their homework. Difficulty staying out of their sister's bedroom, on and on it goes. So if you start replacing behavior or naughtiness with what is the difficulty, you're changing the script and you're changing the language. And that is a great first step into working with a kid on what's going on and how we can improve things for them. So try this communication at home. When you communicate with your child or a child about having dif the difficulty they are having rather than the behavior they are demonstrating, you're going to see a difference in their response to you. So, for example, I see you are having difficulty getting your teeth brushed. What can we do about that? And another one might be, it seems really difficult for you to stop your game to come for dinner. How can we figure that out? And you can see that it's much more of a, a collaborative and empathic, um, uh, including the child in, in this whole communication piece, rather than just telling them what to do. And I, I know that um, Guy has had Ross Green on this um, 
show before, and I am a huge fan of him and uh, Cooperative and Proactive Solutions and all of the work that he's done. In fact, I met him years ago, way back when, and uh, one of the women that was working with him said, I don't, I don't know a lot of people that are using this approach. And now a lot of people are using his approach, and it's a really, really great approach. So if you're not familiar with Ross Green's work in the explosive child or lost at school, I highly, highly recommend uh, what he's done for kids. So when I'm working with a family or I'm working with a child, I'm looking for the underlying cause of the child's difficulties. And for me, over this 20-something years, it can usually be attributed to what I call the A's of behavior. And that includes anxiety, it includes avoidance of things, and it includes attention. So those are the three things that I see most frequently in terms of what's going on with a kiddo. So I'm going to break each of those A's down um, and talk a little bit about them as well as some strategies for them. So we'll talk about anxiety first. So anxious kids may do these things, right? They may seem tense or become upset easily. I should back up and say anxious people may do these things because everything that I talk about can relate to any person, any age. Uh, so not just kids, but they can be tense or become upset easily. You may find kids seeking reassurance and prefer being with, around adults. And adults are supposed to be kind of boring to kids. So if a child prefers us, that is a signal. They are saying that something isn't quite right in terms of would rather want to play with peers than be around us. They may avoid participating in activities that should be fun for them. They may become quiet and withdrawn, and they may even become selectively mute. Uh, and what that is, for those of uh, you who may not have heard about it, is a child will stop speaking, usually in public. Usually they don't have any trouble speaking at home where they're comfortable, but they will refuse to speak at school or refuse to speak in public. And it's a very severe um, end of anxiety. Kids could be overly eager to please us because there's some anxiety about being perfect or an anxiety about failing at something. Then there's the somatic symptoms, which most of us are familiar with. That's the stomach aches and the headaches and other things that go along with um, these kids usually ending up maybe in the school nurse's office when they're in school. Uh, anxiety will cause children to misbehave, especially in new situations or during transitions. It will also um, cause kids to exhibit defiance or inflexibility. And they might have a need to control people and situations. Anxiety has a need to control because it, it makes a person feel so out of control. So you'll see kids trying to wrest that control either from the parent, from the teacher, uh, from their peers, um, and, and need to feel like they're in charge of things because they feel so out of whack on the inside. So let's assume anxiety. When I'm working with a kid who's having some behavior challenges, I'm assuming that it's based in anxiety because you know what? We can't hurt a kid by assuming that. There's absolutely no damage that can be done if we assume that a child is feeling worried, upset, or has a concern about something. So if you assume anxiety as the basis of a child's misbehavior or difficulties, you're going to be right the greater percentage of time. Most things are grounded in anxiety, even if they look like the child is choosing to do them. So we want to say to a kid, 
before we discipline, before we do any sort of, of, you know, consequence, that I think you might be worried about something, or I think you might have a concern on your mind. What's up? And, you know, speaking, you know, from my own life experience of 33 years, my older son has severe anxiety, and it comes out in the form of being really kind of nasty and mean to uh, people around him. But when I say, you know what, I think that you might be worried about something or you have a concern that will usually he'll usually go, yeah, I do. And then we can start talking about what it is rather than focusing on the spiral that he gets into uh, when things aren't going well. So what do kids worry about? Let's talk about what kids worry about because today is about kids. So they worry, they worry about being separated from their parents. You know, certainly separation anxiety is a real thing. They worry about doing well in school or at sports. And these are all questions that I've asked kids over time. So this list is from kids about what they worry about. And included in that is tests. Um, here in Massachusetts, we have a standardized test called MCAS uh, that gets everybody in a flurry every April. Um, they worry about socializing and they worry about having and making friends. They worry about uh, meeting new people and those you know, new novel situations and how do you make the small talk and all that stuff. They may be worried about trying something different or trying something new. Maybe you signed your kid up for ski lessons and they're digging their heels in and don't want to do it, even though you know that they would love it. There's some anxiety about doing things that they're unsure of. They worry about things that could happen, and that includes uh, natural disasters. School shootings is something that does come up with the children that I work with. Um, family tragedies or death, you know, any of these uh, possibilities that could happen and imaginary things. So your little ones um, are probably, you know, the little teenies will sometimes still be worried about, you know, if there's a monster under the bed and or something in the closet. So that's that's a real thing in the littler kids. So one of the things that we can do around anxiety is to check on the environment around the kiddo. So has there been major changes? Has there been a move or has there been a new baby or has there been COVID? You know what I mean? Like the whole world right now has suffered a trauma. And that's, I think, the way we should look at it as kids are heading back to class and back to school and teachers and, um, and all of us have suffered a trauma. Our lives were shut down and it's going on six months now. And we're trying to move forward through that. But I think remembering that uh, we're all going to be coming back with some stress and we're all going to be coming. And who knows what environment the kiddo's coming back from? Maybe it wasn't the safest of environments for them. So I think it's important that we keep trauma in the back of our mind as we're moving forward uh, through this COVID thing. Has there been a loss or a death close to the family or the child? And as educators, you may not be privy to this information. So just like we adults, you know, take our whatever is going on with us to work or wherever, we kind of carry our backpack in. Kids carry their backpack of stuff around with them into school as well, but we might not be privy to know what's in that backpack. Is there some tension in the house or maybe there's a divorce happening? We don't know that maybe. Is there a bullying or mean situation at school or online? Or does a kiddo have low self-esteem related to school? So these are the external things that can be going on with a kid. And if there is some tension in the home, kids are barometers for parental stress or guardian stress. So if things, even if we're not talking to the kids about what's going on, they are feeling it. 
you know, there's a certain vibration in the air. So they do realize that something's going on, even though they might not know the details. And the last one for us to be cautious of is, are we passing along our own fears to children? I can remember working with uh, a parent one time of a little one, and we're just sitting talking. She was across from me, and she had her little doodle, like, wrapped up, like, protecting that little doodle from me or whatever it was, you know. And, and certainly, yes, I'm a stranger, but, you know, maybe mom was maybe passing along some worries. Or when I talk to preschool educators, a lot of them will say, you know, it's not so much the child that's having the separation difficulty as it is sometimes the parents. And that could be from feeling um, badly that we have to leave our child there or it's just, you know, or maybe you want to be with the kiddo all day and you can't. All of these things come into play in uh, the separation stuff. So let's talk about that a little bit more. So if your child suffers from separation anxiety or anxiety in general, one strategy that works for some kids and not for all, and I'll explain why in a sec, is to use previewing with the child about what will be happening. So we can create some scripts to manage changes or transitions, you know, kind of let a kid know what's coming up in the next day or the next week. Some children need that previewing and do well with it. Some children get more anxious when you preview with them. So if I had, you know, my older son needed a haircut, simple example, but I needed to start telling him on Monday that he was going to have a haircut on Saturday and remind him every couple of days because if I sprung it on him on a Saturday without a preview, the haircut wasn't going wasn't gonna to happen. But another child might be terrified of going to the dentist. So if we preview that they're going to the dentist three days from now, well, then that just might send a kid spiraling for the next three days. So the only way to tease that out is you know your own child better than anyone else. And that's something that I always say to parents. No one is more of an expert on your child than you. Um, you know, certainly experts uh, can give you some ideas and some strategies, but ultimately uh, you're your, your child's advocate and you know that kiddo inside and out and make sure that, um, that people listen to you about that. Uh, it's worked to have a kiddo who has separation anxiety keep a favorite picture of you or some sort of transitional object with him in their cubby or during the day if they're having a little trouble leaving. You could create a worry-free zone poster over a child's bed, and this can work for older kids, too. So if they're having trouble separating from you at nighttime, we've had kids design a poster and call it the safe zone or the worry-free zone. You're safe in your bed. You know, mom and dad are here. Nothing bad is going to happen here. And then maybe that poster could include some of their favorite things or favorite pictures and have your child create it with you to let them know that the worries don't have any any reason to be here, everything is fine. Another strategy that has been uh, proven to help kids think more optimistically and uh, be more positive, uh, this comes from positive psychology, is to keep a gratitude journal with your child. And positive psychology has found that if we start to focus on looking for things that we're grateful for and looking for things that are good, then we can actually rewire our brain to be more optimistic and, and um, positive. They've done a lot of studies with soldiers that have been coming back from the war with PTSD on how to, how to do, and gratitude journal is one of them. It's really simple. You just have a little notebook, and or you do it at dinner with everybody and talk about three things that you were grateful for that day or happy about that day. But the key is why 
you were happy about them. So um, my mom made a chocolate cake and chocolate cake is my favorite. And that's just, I was really grateful for mom making the cake. That would be a simple one. And the studies have shown that if you do this for a week, you're going to see a bump in optimism. And if you do it for a month, more of a bump. And if you keep doing it, you can see some really nice long-term, long-term effects on the brain. And then, you know, most parents are already doing this if you've got a child afraid of the dark and, and separation anxiety at night, but have the bedroom door open, trying a nightlight. Um, keeping in mind that if you're one of the parents uh, there out there that has a kid that's having trouble with this whole sleeping thing, it's not going to last forever. It's temporary. Um, there are, you know, strategies around it. Some families don't mind the family bed. Some families do. You could throw a, you know, a mattress on the floor next to the bed. Lots of ideas that that you can try. Um, I do a whole a whole workshop on morning madness and bedtime blues that has more ideas in it. But ultimately, just keep in mind that children will usually outgrow this type of anxiety. I think it's really important to explain to children how their brains work. So anxiety is all in the brain. And in the brain, there's really three areas that we have to think about when we're talking about anxiety. We have to talk about the prefrontal cortex. And the frontal cortex is where we do all of our problem solving and where we're logical and where things make sense and we can, do be, we can be reasonable there. The next area is the hippocampus, and that's our storage unit. So that's where all your math facts are. And every um, word to every song that you knew back in the 70s is there. So that's our storage unit. And then this, this part here, the amygdala, right in the middle is where, is where the feelings and reactions come from. And the amygdala can be a little bit problematic when it comes to anxiety because sometimes the amygdala sends a false danger message and it hijacks the brain. So what happens is um, we interpret something, our brain interprets something, like we need the amygdala. Well, say you're walking down the street and a car is coming towards you. You don't want your prefrontal cortex to go, hmm, I think there's a car coming right at me and I'm wondering what kind of car it is. No, you want your amygdala to make you jump back out of the way of the car. So the amygdala is like faster than the speed of light to keep you safe and we need it. But what happens is when it sends a false danger message, Say, um, say your hippocampus reminds you that you had a not great incident with a dog, right? And then you see a dog walking across the street. The amygdala throws you into the danger zone and you panic, right? And it hijacks the brain, even though you may not be in real danger from the dog. It may hijack the brain during a timed test. It may hijack the brain when you're walking into a new situation. Right. So the amygdala gets in there and it slams the door shut between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. It literally slams a door. And now the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala can't coordinate and can't cooperate. And that's really what a, a, a panic attack or an anxiety attack is all about. So then what happens is the brain will tell us or our kids in this instance that you have one of three things that you can do. So you can fight back. Right? You can run away or you can freeze. And so when a child is you know, being defiant or a child is having a meltdown, that could be the fight part of things. Or if your child has a child trying to bolt out from a situation or hide, they're fleeing. And then freezing, you know, this is the kid who might be walking into a new situation or the new classroom and just stands there and doesn't know what to do. 
and they're frozen in space or they'll implode and not explode. So this um, explanation of the brain, um, I try to make it super kid friendly because once they understand that they're at the mercy of that amygdala and what we need to do is get them to the prefrontal cortex and they're going to feel better. It's a really great explanation. And this is how we help kids get to that prefrontal cortex. All right. So if you're having a child suffering from some anxiety, having a meltdown, uh, this is what you want to do. All right. One of the tricks is snail breathing. Some kids good with it. Some kids say, if you tell me to breathe, I'm going to scream. So if it doesn't work, not all strategies work for all people. We're all very different. All right. But snail breathing is five in through your nose, hold five and five out through your mouth. And what we're trying to do is get the cortisol levels down, right? And all those chemicals that are flowing that the amygdala created to get us out of the situation. There's another technique that's not on the slide around breathing where you use weird numbers like four, seven, nine. So you breathe in for four, you hold for seven, and you're out for nine. And that is really just trying to get your prefrontal cortex to be thinking about the numbers. Because once we start thinking, we're moving to the prefrontal cortex, which is where we need to be. This other exercise, though, can work miracles with kids. I've seen it. Uh, many school nurses have used it with great success in being able to send a kid back to the classroom. I've used it with my 33-year-old. I'll, I'll tell you about what we did in a minute. But So grounding is asking the kid or asking the person to tell you five things that they can see. And so if I'm doing that, I'm going to say, all right, I can see a tree out in my backyard. I can see a box of supplies. I can see my printer. I can see my water. And I can see a highlighter here on my desk. Now, you may notice that I'm looking and thinking, right? So that is your prefrontal cortex doing that work. Then we want to ask the kid for things that they can feel. So we're starting to ground within our senses. And those things that can you feel can be are supposed to be what they can physically feel. So I can feel an itch on my neck. I can feel, um, you know, my back on the chair. I can feel my feet on the floor and I can feel um, the table under my hands. Right. So, again, you're watching me think that through in, in the brain that I need to be in. Three things that you can hear. I can hear traffic on the road. I can hear a bird out the window. And I can hear myself talking. Right? Uh, two things you can smell. And I tell kids if there's something you can't really smell anything in the environment, just tell me two of your favorite smells. And that could be, I don't know, cinnamon or chocolate. And then one thing that you can taste. And again, if a child's saying, I can't taste anything, well, what's one of your favorites? Maybe that could be, you know, chocolate cake. So by the time you've worked your way through this grounding exercise, you hopefully have a kid that's coming back down to baseline and a kid that now we can reason with. Because when the amygdala is in charge, you can't reason with the amygdala. It doesn't have that capability. You have to reason with the prefrontal, prefrontal cortex. So I did this with my son. He was having a panic attack. He called me up. He was stuck in traffic. He was late for work and he was running out of gas. And so he called me in a panic because I'm his person. And so he was just flipping out. So I did this with him. I said, before we before we do anything else, I want you to do this with me. So we did the we went through the grounding exercise and he was a little calmer. And once calmer, then we were able to problem solve the fact that, okay, you can call work and let them know what's going on. 
you could pull over out of the traffic because if you're going to run out of gas, that may happen and you could call AAA. Right. And so he was ready to listen to that once we got him beyond the the overwhelmedness of not being able to uh, solve it in the moment when he was having a panic attack. The other strategy that you can use with a child to pop them from the amygdala to the prefrontal cortex is something called pop the thought. And that's just asking a crazy question of the kid like they're having, you know, whatever's going on. And you can say, you know what? Is an avocado a fruit or a vegetable? Or is why do giraffes have such long necks? Do you know? And they're just nonsensy kinds of questions because what the goal is to have the kid look at you and go, what? And then try to think about it. So again, it's really just a quick little strategy to move the child from that place of stuck in that place of being able to reason with things. How do we help kids let go of anxious thinking? I mean, anxious thinking, if you're an anxious person, you know, it's like a hamster on a wheel and it just goes and goes and goes. And sometimes you have these perseverative thoughts that just get stuck in there. And the same thing happens to kids. So what we want kids to know is to remember that thoughts are just temporary. And you can use analogies such as trains coming in and out of the station, right? It comes like, or in one ear and out the other. Here's the thought. Do I need the thought? Not really. I can just keep moving it along. We're all inundated. Our brains inundate us with billions of thoughts every day, and we don't have to keep them all. Or they can think of them as a temporary visitor. You know, somebody came and visited, and they'll be on their way. So cognitive behavioral therapy, which is the best, I think, one of the best courses of treatment for anxiety, does this. It asks you to, to think about your thinking and control your thinking. And that is one thing that we can control. When anxiety feels out of control, we can teach kids to learn how to control their thought process. Another way to help kids uh, through a spiral of anxious thinking is to provide a positively competing event. And that just means to have some fun because the brain can't have fun and worry at the same time. It's impossible for it to be in both places. So especially little kids, uh, just distract them with something fun to do. And with older kids, you know, try to find something that soothes them or that they find enjoy and get them out of that worry cycle. And sometimes it takes um, us as adults to help them do that. The other things we can do for kids is to help them learn how to create a coping thought. And I use the word coping a lot with the kids that I work with because we all have to learn how to cope. I mean, life is not going to be easy all the time. We have to build some resilience. We have to build some ways around the obstacles that are thrown our way. One of the ways we can do this is to walk a kid through what's the worst thing that could happen, right? So I was coaching a teenager who wanted to ask a girl out on a date. I'm like, what's the worst thing that could happen? She could laugh at me and say no. Okay, fair. And then ask, well, what's the best thing that she could have that could happen? He goes, well, she could say yes, and we could go out and have a really good time. And I said, okay, then, well, what's the most likely thing to happen? And he said, well, most likely knowing her, she'll probably either say yes um, or another time, right? And so the best case, worst case, most likely can help a kid challenge uh, some of the thinking that they're having. Let's move on to avoidance as one of the roots of why some kids are struggling uh, and looking behavioral, but what is it based in? So avoidance, kids may use uh, behavior to avoid during the doing the non-preferred tasks like 
doing their schoolwork, getting ready for school, doing their homework, getting ready for bed, right? I bet all of us have experienced a kid uh, arguing with us and, uh, you know, avoiding things for 45 minutes that would take four minutes to finish, right? We've all been in that position as parents. So here, we want to understand the difference between an emotional versus a manipulative tantrum because kids are quite capable of using manipulative tantrums to avoid things that they're supposed to do. And I always say that kids are also quite capable of being naughty on purpose. And it's our job as the adult to figure out, you know, really, is this naughty on purpose or is this, you know, something that is underneath and driving my kid to behave, misbehave? I always go with the underlying thing. I don't think kids um, are usually naughty on purpose. Uh, in the to the degree of the kids that I work with, there's usually a reason why it looks the way it does, why it looks manipulative. But anyway, so an emotional tantrum is a tantrum that you want to soothe and take care of and help a child with. So an emotional tantrum might be, say you and your family were at an amusement park, it was 95 degrees all day, you're you're all spent, you're all hungry. And, you know, maybe McDonald's doesn't have what your kiddo wants and they have this meltdown. But that's an emotional one. And that's one that we want to take care of. And that's one that we want to pay attention to and whatever it is to help to help soothe the kid. A manipulative tantrum is used for a kid to get what they want. All right. And so in a manipulative tantrum situation, that's one we don't want to feed any energy to. We don't want to get into heavy discussions about as long as a child is safe. Okay. So some of the PDA children that I've known over the years amp that anxiety and avoidance up to a place of not being safe. And so what we really want to learn how to do with those guys is all of these strategies to keep them from getting there. Um, but if they get there, then you're going to use whatever safety plan your family has in place um, to work with that uh, particular kind of explosion. But again, those are also flipped back to emotional tantrums. I really don't believe that um, kids set out to be manipulative. I think that they find it sometimes a certain tool that will work for them. And then it starts to look like manipul manipulation. But um, but it's more of a, a trying to get a need met, they're communicating that they have some sort of need that's not being met. But in a manipulative tantrum, if you know your child for sure is just trying to get something from you, what we don't want to do is debate a kid. Right? And um, screens are also a good way for all of us to avoid doing things, kids included. And so what are the rules about screens? And again, that's a whole big family discussion. And it's also uh, certainly an individual thing. There are some families that don't mind their child being on screens all the time. And there are some families that have specific rules or some families that use it only on the weekends. Every family is different. And I think that, again, I'm going to go back to, you know, your child better than anyone else. And I don't know if any, uh, any of you have ever gotten into a situation where extended family doesn't understand this, that you know your child better than anyone else or when you're out in public. My best advice on that is to uh, thank them for their input and continue doing what it is you need to do for your own kid and try to ignore what I call the other people. Another thing that we can think about around avoidance is asking ourselves, 
Is it something that my child can't do? Or is it something that my child won't do? And those are two different things. But the challenge is sometimes if a child can't long enough, then they won't, right? So an important thing to remember is to remember that our adult expectations should be in line with a child's developmental age. So I'm not talking about their chronological age. So I call it the one-third rule for what A-plus kids, you know, ADHD, anxiety, autism spectrum. So development, cognitively, these kids are typically very bright. You know, they typically have a, a high IQ, do well at school, you know, all of those um, things that we want for kids cognitively. And, but the challenge is that socially and emotionally, they are young. Socially, emotionally, they're a third behind their peers. And so when you start to think about that in the context of what a child is doing, it makes more sense. So if your six-year-old is still having meltdowns in school, it might be because developmentally, they're like three and a half or four. Or if your 12-year-old girl isn't, you know, following along with her peers and getting ready for makeup and all that and would rather play, you know, with her stuffed animals or My Little Pony or whatever, that's because she's nine developmentally. And think about putting a teenager behind the wheel of a car who's 16 and might have ADHD. You might be putting your 12-year-old behind the wheel of a car. So it's really important for us to remember that our expectation of a kid is here and they can only so developmentally give us there. And that gap is where their self-esteem falls apart because they're never meeting our expectations. And uh, that's a difficult place for a kid to be. So, yes, subtract one third. So there are kids that avoid new things. What can we do with those guys? Well, 20 seconds is all a child needs to overcome a block and try something new. I call it their 20 seconds of courage or 20 seconds of bravery. And many kids have used this uh, out in the world. I've had kids come back and say, I used my 20 seconds of bravery at swim class. And I tried something that the, uh, the swim instructor wanted me to do. Or I used my 20 seconds of bravery and I took that ski lesson my mom wanted me to take and now I like it. Or I used my 20 seconds on horseback riding today. So it gives them something concrete, uh, a number. Anybody can try most things for 20 seconds. Or you can have them try one new thing one time for just one minute. And all we're trying to do here with this avoidance of trying things and doing things is to give that anxious kid the sense of control around it. 20 seconds or one minute, we have time, we have, you know, we have something that we control and we can stop. And if a child has tried something new and wants to stop, hey, they tried. And maybe they'll try again the next time. And you can build on that. There's a great book on anxiety. I don't know if um, guys ever had her on the show, but her name is Donna Pincus, and she's with the Child Anxiety Network in Boston. And she wrote a book called Growing Up Brave. And it is uh, a wonderful cognitive behavioral uh, handbook, basically, for parents for things that you can do at home uh, to help your child. And one of them is this bravery ladder that she talks about where the goal might be going to swim lesson, but we can't go from home to swim lesson. We might have to just drive to the building one day and then maybe we have to go in the building the next day and then maybe we put our suit on. And so some kids might need that step ladder of increasing success to get to the final goal. 
Another thing, uh, this is a trap that we adults find ourselves in when kids are avoiding doing what we would like them to do is we ask the wrong question. We ask a yes or no question. We want to beware the yes or no question when no is not an option. So an example, do you want to get your homework started now? No. Do you want to help me carry in the groceries? Not really. <laughs> do you want to get your shoes on so we could go? Yeah, no, I'm good where I'm at. So if we give the yes or no option because we're trying to be kind, then we've given the option. And so when we get angry at a child for not uh, complying with what we asked them to do, well, maybe we gave them the option not to do it. So it's, it's, I catch myself doing it all the time still, and I catch uh, parents doing it too, but it's fun when we catch each other. What you want to do is if you really need your child to do something and your child, um, you know, is a good recipient of a directive because there are kids that are not, uh, you want to give short and clear ones instead. So you could say something like, I need some help with the groceries, please. In five minutes, we'll be getting our shoes on to leave. And, um, you know, in 10 minutes, uh, it'll be homework time. Right. So we want to be a little bit more directive and we'll, we may find ourselves with a greater percentage of kiddo doing what they want, what we want them to do. And another uh, caveat I add on here is if a child is complaining, but complying, be quiet because you got you won. Let them complain all they want because they're doing what you asked them to do. We don't need to get involved in the complaining. We can just tune it out. All right. Positive reinforcement. And I'm not talking about, you know, some kids, some people do well with sticker charts. Some people don't. Again, you know your kid. Um, but what positive reinforcement, the basis of that for me is just to find something that a child is doing right and pointing it out. You know what? You just did that so well. I was really happy that you let me talk on the phone when I had a meet, an important meeting. Or I really appreciate the fact that you cleared your dishes off the table and I didn't have to remind you. Or I'm really glad that you held your temper in when your sister was in your room and just came and got me for help. Because what we want to do is reinforce, reinforce what kids are doing right. This theory behind behavior says that the behavior that gets more attention is the behavior that we're going to see more of. So we want kids to repeat the good stuff. And there are some kids that don't take well to compliments. I have come across some of those kids in my work. But most kids, um, you can see them kind of perk up a little bit when you told them something that they've done really well. There's a difference between rewards and bribery. And, you know, as we get into this reward thing, um, for me, some kids do better when they have a goal to work towards. Uh, for example, if, if a boss said, you know what, if you get this um, project done before the deadline, there'll be a money bonus in it for you. Well, of course, we would try. Right. So same for kids. Um, but again, it's not something that we're going to hold over them. It's just something that we're going to put out there and, and try. But the difference between bribery and reward is a reward comes for a job well done. Like we go to work, we get a paycheck. That's our reward. Bribery is up front. So a simple example would be you're taking your kid to the grocery store and you say to your child, you know what? I'm going to give you this candy bar. And now I expect you to be really good in store for me. That's a bribe. Now, a reward is you get to the checkout and you say to your kids, you know what? You did everything that you were supposed to do in the store and you, and you did everything that I asked you to do so you can choose a candy bar. That is the difference between bribery and reward with kids. And rewards do not have to be things. Your time is very valuable to a child, 
right? Uh, spending extra time with the kid saying, you know, when we get this done, we've worked really hard today. Certainly I'll play one of your favorite games with you or I'll sit and I'll watch you play Minecraft and talk about it with you for a little while. Kids love that stuff. Verbal rewards, again, that verbal praise, specifically what you're praising. And or there's also um, let me go back to the slide for a second. It goes on, you say. So, yeah, it doesn't have to be things. I mean, a lot of parents use things and some kids respond well to working towards things. Um, I'm, I'm a believer that not every recipe fits every kid. And so if a sticker chart works for your kid, use it. If it doesn't, don't. If a reward works for your kid, great. If it doesn't, use something else. And if you're struggling with finding something that does work, you know, that might be um, a time when you want to check in with maybe a coach or a parenting coach or something like that to say, look, we've tried this, that and the other thing. We're not getting anywhere. And let's brainstorm some ideas together. Another way to help kids uh, do a little bit less avoiding is using grandma's rule, which is as soon as or when then is the phrase. So you say something like, sure, as soon as your teeth are brushed, I'll read a story for you. Or yes, when all the toys are cleaned up, then we'll play a game. Or absolutely, as soon as you're ready for school, you can you do your screen and talk till it's time to go. Or as soon as you're ready for school, um, and if you're early, then we can absolutely go to Dunkin' Donuts. So what we're trying to do is give the kid the yes that they're looking for, but also getting the need for us as a parent or an educator met as well. Because I said blank, right? Most of us adults grew up with someone filling in the word so with that. Most of us would fill it in because I said so. Because I said so does not work well with kids in general. And there's always a reason for why you're saying no. So kids do good or better when there's an explanation of the expectation. Try explaining why you need or want them to do something. So I had some guys in my office and I have a very slippery floor and they were slipping around in their socks. And I was afraid somebody was not only going to get hurt, but there would be a hole in my wall, which has happened in the past from that kind of um, rowdy playing. And so I kept trying to tell them, stop, you know, we're, you know, we know we have a rule about not sliding in the socks. And, you know, nobody was listening to me. They kept doing it. So I pulled them all aside and I said, you know what, guys, I bet that you don't like it when an adult says you have to stop this. And I bet you don't like it even more when they say, because I said so. And they're like, yeah. And I said, all right, I'm going to tell you the why of I've, I've um, requested that you stop sliding around in your socks. And I showed them the hole that was in the wall behind a bookcase that I left there just for this type of experience. And they were all like, oh. And I said, so that's the reason. I said, number one, I don't want you to get hurt. And number two, I don't want my wall to get hurt. And they're like, oh, okay. Right? So now they had the explanation. Now they had the understanding of why I was putting this particular rule into play. So uh, I would encourage everyone to, when you have to say no or when you have to lay down a rule, explaining the why. It'd be great to review with kids coming back into school why of the mask if they're if they're required in your school. You know why are why are we doing some of the things that we're doing? around social and physical distancing and all of those things. Kids have heard it, but it never hurts to explain it again. All right, we have some time. We're gonna look into attention behaviors, okay? So attention kids are kids who are attention seekers or who have attention challenges that demonstrate behaviors that are annoying or frustrating. And these are some of our toughest kids to um, help in terms of how their peers 
um, interpret their behavior, how uh, parents and other parents, how teachers. Um, my younger son, I'll talk about him for a second, he's raging ADHD, drove his teachers nuts because um, all of the things that he did in his attention-seeking, uh, high-stimulation-seeking way drove them nuts. So what we want to do, one of the first things we want to do, and I call them ogre pokers, uh, <laughs> because they need to be kept busy and redirected. So a child, I'm going to talk about ADHD because it's my experience, but a child who has ADHD can't stand boredom. And if the environment is boring and too quiet, they will go around and poke ogres until something goes off in the environment. You know, fireworks, somebody gets mad, somebody, you know, teasing, whatever it is to get the level of stimulation up to where they need it. Um, if you've ever seen a, a kiddo smirk, um, you know, when they've caused an uproar. It's not that they're smirking because they're happy that they're getting themselves into trouble. They're smirking because their brain got that stimulation fix that it was searching for. They're very high stimulation kids. We want to keep them busy. And if we can give them, keep them busy with risky things that are safe, you know, for example, these guys do really well with the outdoor stuff like skateboarding, climbing trees, skiing, uh, you know, maybe some parasailing, anywhere that they can take a safe risk fills that need um, so that they're not taking it out on other people around them. For these guys, we want to break down our expectations. What does be good mean exactly? I want you to be good. That is a crazy broad statement when you think about it, right? So there's no such thing as a good girl or a bad boy. And um, I really try to diminish the use of, of any sort of that language when I'm working with kids and I encourage parents to do the same, not be a good girl. You're a girl or you're a boy or you're whatever, you know, it can be on you know, other genders and you make good choices and you make poor choices, but that doesn't make you as a human being all good or all bad. So I think that that language is important because kids will self-label if we give them that label. And we don't want to assume that a child knows what the expectations are of any given environment. So it can be different in different places. So the uh, expectation in a grocery store could be, okay, we're going to the grocery store. I expect that you will stay by the cart. I expect that you will not pull things down the, off the shelves. And I, will, I expect that you will not choose more than one snack. That's how many you can choose today, right? Or say you are a family that goes to church. You can say, all right, we're going to church. And the expectations are we're going to sit quietly if you have to say something to me, you're going to whisper in my ear. If you need a break, you're going to let me know so we can get up and go outside. Whatever the be good is, is what we should tell kids to be doing. Like at grandma's house, when we go to grandma's for dinner, we expect everybody to sit at the table. We expect you to be polite to grandma. And yes, you might have to give her a hug. All right. Well, maybe not now because of COVID. But the one word rule for kids who struggle with attention difficulties is for us to get to the message as quickly and succinctly as possible. So, for example, women, myself included here, we use a lot, we tend to use a lot of words. So we might sound like, you know what, you need to go brush your teeth because if you don't brush your teeth, then you're going to have a cavity. And if you get a cavity, then you're going to have to go to the dentist and you're going to have to get a pill, right? That's, that's mom. Dad will usually do something like teeth. Done. And dad usually gets the better response. So we as we as um, people who use a lot of words may want to start thinking about when we really want to get through to our attention kid, 
we want to get as close to the message as we can. And you want to make sure that you have their brain. And how you do that is you say to your attention kid, you say, you know what? Hey, Connor, I need your brain for a second. I need to tell it something important. And then Connor's eyes will be on you. And then you know that you've got him. Because if Connor has a busy brain, your voice is probably 50 items down the list and you want to make it number one. So if you have a child that has um, attention stuff and can have some difficulty with being impulsive, and this is a difficult uh, thing for parents and educators to deal with sometimes too, is one of the strategies I use for kids is to encourage them to always ask before taking action. A simple one would be one kid's holding something, an item that's really cool. The other kid comes over and goes, oh, let me see, and has ripped it out of the other kid's hands. So what you want to do is coach that or say, I know you really want to see it. It's really awesome. The thing is, you want to make sure you ask before you take it and walk the kids through asking before action. Or it could be something like if you're in school and you might want to have the child practice asking before they take anything off the teacher's desk or asking before they take a lollipop at the bank. And some things are hidden messages that it's okay to do. But with an attention kid or an ADHD kid, um, the more that we can have them practice this, it, it that starts to build that stop sign in their brain and helps to decrease some of that impulsivity if we can get them in the habit of asking. Um, stop it should only be said and heard once. So I coach many kids out here. Stop it, Joey. Stop. Joey, I said, stop it. What? And I'll walk over and say, how come I heard stop it like four times? We should only be hearing stop it one time. Right? Now, here's the, the rub with that is sometimes the kid who's doing the offending thing doesn't know what they should stop. They really don't. So what we want to work with is the kid who's saying stop it to identify for the other kid what it is they want to stop. So say Joey's poking, you know, Marty with a pencil and Marty's like, stop it, Joey, stop it. Well, Joey might not know. So we want Marty to say, you know what, Joey, I want you to stop poking with the pencil. I don't like it. Right now, not every kid is going to identify that for other kids. So we want to get Joey to start learning that when he hears stop it, he might want to check in and go, what am I doing? Or I don't know what I'm doing, you know, and it's not a perfect thing, but it is a strategy that, you know, I have taught some kids to do. And, and now in a social group, if someone says stop it, stop it, stop it, one of the other kids will pipe in. Yeah, because, you know, she says stop it one time. Right. So we're giving kids tools and we're giving kids um, tips on how to work this for themselves. When you've got a kid who got in trouble for being impulsive, we want to work backward from reaction to what could have been a different choice. Because if we just go ahead and jump right into disciplining something, we have lost a golden opportunity to teach a child a skill that he's missing. So, for example, Joey pushes Mary on the playground. Now, Joey's in trouble for pushing Mary on the playground. And he's in trouble. And that's it. Right. And Mary goes off to play or do whatever. What if we did this? What if we said, all right, Joey, not sure. I'm not. I definitely don't agree with pushing. But what happened before Mary before you pushed Mary? And he might say, well, she called me a name and stuck her tongue out at me. I'm like, oh, yeah, that wasn't very nice. Well, like what happened before she did that? Well, I called her a name. I'm like, oh, OK, so what happened before that? And he said, well, she wouldn't give me a turn with something I'm like, oh, so what skill is Joey missing? learning how to negotiate a term. And so that's what we have to teach Joey. And so we'll teach him the uh, how to get a turn, how to work on getting a turn, so that next time he Mary isn't giving him a turn, 
he can work on what a compromise might look like, or he can learn how to ask for help with something rather than the reaction that he had, which we don't agree with. And so, you know, I would say, you know, you definitely don't agree with pushing. Um, it's not a good way to solve a problem. Let's try a better way or a different way to solve a problem. And we're taking amazing opportunities now to teach kids these missing skills. We also want to offer them a backup and a redo opportunity. Give them a second chance, sometimes a third chance. I always substitute that for you when I'm talking to a kid about a behavior. That sounded a little mean. I think maybe trying it again might be helpful. Or, you know what? That's pestering. I was using that with my grandson the other day. That's pestering, right? And so I don't like it when I'm being pestered. So anything, what we want to do is identify the thing that we're trying to change or trying the difficulty and not saying, you know, you're being a pest or you're being whiny or, you know, you're not listening and it's, or you're being rude because that just puts people on the defensive. Okay. Uh, sometimes I also ask a kid who's done something impulsive. Was that something that happened before your brain had a chance to stop and think? Most usually. So what can you do to fix it? And there's a difference between an oops and an on purpose. I mean, so if a kid's walking by another kid's Lego tower and accidentally knocks it over because he's impulsive and whatever, that's an oops. It's not an on purpose. Right. And so what you would say in that is like, oh, my gosh, I didn't see that. Let me help you fix it. Or what can I do to help fix it? Or if it's an on purpose and the child is angry and goes over and deliberately kicks it over. Well, certainly that's a different scenario. Right. But most of the time when you offer a kid a do over, they'll take it. If you offer two do-overs, say let's talk about being rude, right? And the child has not taken the opportunity to redirect themselves. Now we're talking about purposeful naughty behavior. And now it's okay to consequence. Okay? So after the behavior continues, after two offers, you can do a consequence that, that fits the scenario. When we use consequences, for behavior to change, the person doing the misbehaving has to experience some negative consequence and learn from it. Again, this is like the very last thing when a kid is being really naughty on purpose, which is not my belief of most children, right? And if a consequence is going to work, it's going to work the first time you do it, and it's going to need to make sense to the kids. So if a child's out there riding their bike without the helmet, absolutely put the bike away for 24 hours. Uh, if your teenager snuck their phone in after midnight when it wasn't supposed to be in their room, of course we're going to lose the phone for 24 hours. Short and sweet, and then give a chance to do it again, all right, and have the child learn from, from it. Um, be very careful, again, when we're disciplining, if we're disciplining a behavior, which is the won't, versus an ability to meet expectations, which is the can't. And again, I'm a believer that for most kids, there's some level of can't. Uh, parenting as a team, moms and dads and guardians, I should have guardians in here, view behavior very differently. Um, we want to think about what are the rules of the house? Are they posted with attached consequences? That can be a lifesaver. You guys sit down, write the rules of the house and post them. And if the rule gets broken, what's going to happen? Now you have something to refer back to. And I believe in having kids involved in doing that. When I mean moms and dads view behavior very differently, uh, typically uh, a mom will view the behavior as a, 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 a distinct reflection of her ability to parent. And her self-esteem gets damaged if she has a child who has behavioral challenges because she feels like she's not doing something right, right? So moms really base a lot of self-esteem on their kids' behavior, where dads be like, he's, he's the one having the tantrum, not me, right? So we moms need to be a little bit more like dads and separating ourselves emotionally from what our child's doing 
But the same token, I think dads need to understand how moms come at this and uh, the importance of a mom's self-esteem. Define the big deal and little deal items together. Okay, as a team, if it's a big deal for one and a little deal for other, that's going to cause some uh, parental stress. I mean, nobody sits down before you have kids and goes, so what's your parenting style going to be? No one does it. We should. Right. And so everybody, you start to discover that maybe you're not on the same page. So going out to dinner and getting on the same page can be important. Try to be consistent and follow through with what you say that you're going to do, but do it calmly. Modeling the behavior that you want is hugely important. If you want your child not to scream, then we shouldn't be screaming either. If we want our child to learn how to be flexible, we should be flexible ourselves. Modeling is a huge language from us, you know, in terms of demonstrating to kids what it is that we want them to do and see. And don't let one parent go it alone. And let, of course, single parents, unfortunately, do have to go it alone sometimes. But if, you know, I've always said that if one parent is handling it, um, let that parent handle it. And if that parent taps out and brings the other parent in uh, as backup, then the backup parent gets to handle it the way they want. And first parent has to be quiet and, and just uh, let second parent handle it. So behavior management for me begins with building mutual respect. And I want to leave time for a couple of questions. So I'm just going to roll through these. So building mutual respect with the kid, really listen. And empathy is your power tool. Let's solve problems together. Let's play with them and have some fun. Let's keep our expectations in line with development, catch them getting it right, and talk with them instead of demanding or yelling. Because I believe that defining the real problem is the first step towards solving it with a kid. And that there's at least six or seven different solutions to everything. And that is what I had to say today. Excellent. Thank you so much. I'm going to bring Dea back up on the screen here. And uh, let's, uh, I'm going to pull your slide deck down. So hopefully you'll see us here in a second. Uh, That was fantastic. Uh, Thank you so much. Uh, There's so many things that that resonated with me. And, and, you know, I I think, um, you know, there's a lot of parallels with uh, the work of uh, Dr. Green and and your, uh, in your approach. This has really been useful. Um, so I want to invite people that are in our audience. Uh, we've got some people live watching that if you have any questions or even comments, uh, feel free to uh, put those in the chat now. We'll try to get to a couple of questions. Uh, but, but before we get to questions, it's always great to have comments. That makes like this. my day. Fantastic. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, there was another one I saw here earlier. Uh, it was talking about a particular piece of advice you gave, but really it came down to, you know, realize when you have one and stop yourself from getting into word battle to, or controlling a situation. And, and that's so often is that that issue that we see, you know, in, in schools and, and in homes when when we get in compliance, uh, you know, mode and uh, everything has to be because we said so. And I thought you added uh, some great things to that. Uh, we nice. have some more comments coming in here. Um, and again, I encourage you if you have any questions. Uh, you can put those in the chat as well. Uh, Dave, did you really have any questions? I everything that you put together, Donna. I think that what stood out to me um, is kind of taking the the child away from the behavior in the sense of changing your vocabulary. Because I, I think I kind of identified that one moment that you said, instead of saying, you're annoying me, you say, that's annoying me. And that is a huge bridge between how you make your child feel yeah. and just establishing your own boundaries at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
Yeah, it's a, a lot of what I teach is um, and to kids and the parents. It's just a little twist of language, right? Just yeah. replace this word with that, and you've got a whole different dynamic yes. to what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, your strategies are great. I've I think I've been using your strategies like I think my son is sixteen, almost seventeen, okay. for a good ten years now, and the strategies are awesome. So I've got a question here from Diane, and uh, her question is, how do you break parents' habit of saying, because I said so? And that's a really good question. Even broader than that, um, sometimes sometimes we're, we're reflecting that every change needs to happen at the child level. But but how do you how do you get to the point of that we need to make changes yeah, as well? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, how do you, you encourage know, that? as Ross Green also, it's really the adult that does a lot of this language kind of shifting. Um, I said to the kids when I was talking about this because I said so thing, I gave them permission to remind me if I did it. You know, and it was that simple. I said, if I pull because I said so on you, you have my permission to say, but you didn't give us the reason. Right. And so having uh, your child or a child be in a partnership of breaking some of these bad habits um, can really, really help. You know, because if we, we are in a habit, one of the great ways to break that is just have somebody point out that you did it. <laughs> so <laughs> you just did it. Um, and I, ha I have given the kids permission to do that. If I pull it because I said so, um, let me know. You know, let me know nicely, but let me know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's great. Well, and I love how much respect for children you have, you know, because that's something that sometimes is forgotten. It's all about doing things to kids and not working or collaborating with kids. And, and everything you said is being mindful of that and the words. And that's so important. Uh, so important in the, the words that we use. Uh, so we have another question here about where we can find a parent coach. I definitely uh, zoom in with parents or you may want to um, Google that in. Uh, sometimes it ends up being a therapist, but I think coaching and therapy are really different in my brain because therapy is, is, is more of a, for a lot of families, uh, kind of digging around as to why things are going on or on, on different different, deeper emotional level where coaching is like what I'm doing, like try this, that doesn't work, try this, right? Or pull a parent aside and go, you know what, I, I'm hearing a lot of those yes or no questions, right? So this is something that we can focus on. So I think you could look up parent coaching, uh, parent life coaching, uh, and see what's in your area or what's feasible in terms of um, connecting with somebody. Uh, oh, yeah. Now, now, did you say you actually offer this as a remote service? Okay, that's great. Can you tell sure. us a little bit more so about uh, Peter Pan Center? Initially, the Peter Pan Center started out, the name Peter Pan came from a college project. So in the, I went to Leslie University in Cambridge, Mass., and I had to do a, a, a college project for my last semester. And I was working with my professor, and it was a look at the experience of mothers of children with ADHD. That's what kind of, you know, the mom's experience of a whole of it. Hmm. And so it ended up, he said to me, he goes, that's great. Have you ever read Peter Pan? And I said, no, I've seen the Disney movie. You know, I never read it. He goes, go read Peter Pan. Tell me if he has ADHD or not. But he does. So it became, the project became Mothering Peter Pan. And then I started out, I wanted my life to be parent coaching. And as I was doing a lot of parent coaching, uh, it turned out that a lot of parents were saying, you know, my kid has trouble with friendships. One of the big problems is we can't go to play groups and things like that. And I said, well, let's just do some here. And it was about all that time that I was introduced to Ross's work, too. And so I was using uh, his uh, his stuff in the play groups and it was really working. 
you know, like really working. And so I've just built on that over the years. So I do social skills groups for kids. Um, I have one Zoom group and three in-person groups. Um, I do this kind of professional development parent stuff. And, and then I also do individual coaching if people are looking for it. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, so there, there was a follow-up question under that, uh, asking if a parent coach should have certain certifications. Um, I had a professor once say to me that he would take competence over credentials any day. So if you feel comfortable, I would interview a few parent coaches and see, you know, if their style matches yours, if they're willing to see you as the expert on their on your own child because you know right. we're not that's so that's so important i mean more more, more iep teams need to recognize that that parents yeah. parents are the expert on their children you right know? um but it can be helpful i think for if you're looking for parent coaching that uh you have somebody who's been in the field you have somebody that's done a lot of work with parents and families and somebody that you feel comfortable with whether they're certified or not most of us are in some level um, but again, if you feel comfortable with the person and they're helping you, then I don't think you need a thousand uh, alphabet soup letters after their name. Yeah. You know, it might be helpful too. Um, you know, if you, if you have a guiding philosophy that you like, I mean, so I go back to people like Ross Green with kind of the kids do well if they can approach, yeah. but I mean, if you have someone's work that you, you respect and like, uh, even, even bringing that up in a conversation with a professional you talk about and in, even with schools for, for, uh, my son, you know, I remember having conversations like, yeah, well, I'm a big fan of the work of Ross Green. And when somebody said, yeah, then I was like, ah, these yeah. might be people that, um, so, you know, even knowing some of the things that you like in terms of approaches, I think can probably be helpful. Mm -hmm. um, there was a question here. We actually, we have uh, two more and I think we'll have to wrap up because uh, I know we've got a stop uh, at 4.15. Um, and let's see what we have here. Okay. So this person asked, how do we introduce this to staff at schools without offending them as experts? Oh, um, I have found in my experience with some school staff that uh, if you come at it from social emotional learning, you know, that you just want to support your child with social emotional learning and that, you know, maybe you listen to this speaker and maybe, you know, have you heard of this speaker? And if not, you know, can I share the presentation with you or give you the link? Um, I always think, you know, kind of going in soft, soft pedaling in a little bit and saying, you know, I don't know if you've heard of these um, ideas or these strategies, but I wonder if they work with my kids. You know, I mean, like come in with um, we're all on the same team. Um, and again, they're experts, but they're not experts on your kid. And um, they're, you know, certainly they're experts in whatever branch that they do. But I think that you as a parent maybe can find the confidence to be the expert on your kid and introduce some of the things that you know work for your kid. I have um, a friend who actually every year she fills out like a little uh, CV or resume about her child every year and gives it to the teacher. You know, this is what my child likes to do. This is what my child doesn't like to do. This is what will work for discipline. This is what will set them on fire, you know? And so you, you definitely want to approach school from being the expert. And I know we as parents sometimes feel less than, you know, I can remember sitting in many a team meeting you know, because I had the behavioral kid and feeling at a loss, like no one, no one understands, you know, no one, no one. I think we are so much more savvy, though, than we were 30 years ago when I was going through this. I mean, we've come on in some ways, leaps and bounds with some of some mm -hmm. of the stuff we need to understand. So as a follow up to that question, do you offer um, training to teachers in schools? Do you do 
professional development? Because I know a lot of schools do have budget or, or do have through a, a maybe an advisory committee or something else, the ability to do those kinds of things. And, and maybe it's a recommendation to your, your school system. Hey, I saw this great presentation and, and, you know, getting them in touch with somebody like Donna that can uh, do a presentation at your school. And of course, we also recommend, you know, through the Alliance, I mean, our audience, our, our parents, our teachers, our educators, our advocates, um, you know, share these videos. They'll be made available after the fact. Um, share if you're if you're a parent, share them with your teachers. If you're a teacher, share them with your parents. You know, this is really to benefit all of us. Um, so on that note, I know we are on time and I know you've got a group coming in here soon. So we need to, to let you go. But this has been fantastic. Really uh, an honor to have you on here with us. Um, great to have your 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 wisdom to share with the the audience here. This has been really, really helpful. Um, and of course, we have your contact information as well. Uh, and I'd encourage people to share this. So thank you again for uh, coming today. All right. Thank you. All right. So I'm going to make a couple announcements here. But thank you again, Donna. And Dea, thank you as well. So a couple of quick announcements. Um, we do have a, and again, in two weeks. So we've been doing these every two weeks. Uh, we have another great um, event coming up in two weeks. We're going to be talking with uh, Leslie Said Margolis, who is a managing attorney with Disability Rights Maryland. Uh, she has been looking at the issue of restraint and seclusion for many years and is uh, very much an expert on the topic and has worked on it at a state and national level. Uh, including work on a uh, recent statement from the American Bar Association. So that should be a really great event um, and a good chance, again, to, to come uh, with questions and, and uh, bring those uh, from a different perspective. Uh, so, again, we're going to have uh, another one in, in two weeks, and we've got some really great guests lined up all the way up until January. So we've got some great uh, things coming up for you again. So I want to thank everybody for uh, joining us today. Uh, you know, we really enjoy this opportunity to uh, present this to you. And I uh, look forward to seeing you again soon. So take care and thank you.